You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Let's go ahead and start on the book of Esther. Just 10 chapters with this. Um, But it was written around 450 B.C., And it covers a time period of around 487 to 475, somewhere in there, B.C. We do not know who the author is. It's completely anonymous. Uh, But uh, we do know the audience, and the audience is the nation of Israel. And we see that there's a difference there. Because for Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, the audience is really specifically the remnant of the people who have returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, But Esther is opening it back up to all of the nation of Israel. Now let's go ahead and um, let's go ahead and read verse one through four of chapter one, and this is going to get us started. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus, which reigned. Listen to the largeness of his of his kingdom right here, from India even unto Ethiopia over in 107 and 20 provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, and the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days. This is a six-month feast. Now, looking back, uh, it is truly easy to see how Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, they kind of all fit together. They're, they're almost like a three-part telling of one big story. And that big story is how the Israelites are able to come back from Babylon And it happens in three waves, the first one under Zerubbabel, the second one under Ezra, the third one under Nehemiah. Uh, But it's all just one big story. Now, the book of Esther fits right in the middle of those three books. And actually, chronologically, it fits in between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. Fits right in there. Um, But Esther is not focusing on the Jews that have returned from Babylon. Uh, It's not focusing on them. It's actually focusing on the Jews and and, uh, a greater number of Jews that have stayed behind. Uh, The ones who have stayed behind and are now under uh, Persian rule. Um, And now we're going to get into this uh, a little bit later. All of the Jews are still under Persian rule, even the ones who are in Jerusalem. But Esther is focusing on the Jews that have stayed behind and uh, in a Persian city called Susa. Now, as the story develops, it is eventually going to encompass the entire nation of Israel. And you'll see what I mean by that as we get into this. But this book contains five main characters, and uh, this would be good to remember. So the first main character is Ahasuerus, and he is the Persian king. He's married to a lady named Vashti. She is the Persian queen. Then we're going to be introduced to a man named Mordecai, and he is a Jewish leader. And then you have Hadassah, but we know her better as Esther, and she is a Jewish girl, the cousin of Mordecai. And then you have Haman, and Haman is Ahasuerus' chief prince. 
Those are the five main characters in this story. And this book can be divided into two parts. You have part one, which is chapter one through five, and you have part two, which is chapter six through ten. Part one through five is the danger. I mean, you're just going to see all throughout those first five chapters the danger against the Jews growing and growing and growing, all mounting up to chapter six, where everything flips on one portion of the story, and then you see the deliverance come through. Now, before we go forward, I want to speak specifically about this certain character named Ahasuerus. It's very important for us to understand who he is before we go forward. Um, Ahasuerus is not a good man. History tells us that Ahasuerus, and, and from what we see in history, um, he is called uh, Xerxes uh, in history, but Ahasuerus here in the Bible, the same man. Ahasuerus was a man with a terrible temper. He was extremely perverted. Uh, he was brutally violent. Um, just looking up some of the different things that he did to his own family is, is horrible. Um, and he was a very morally conflicted man. And what I, mean, what I mean by that is at some points he seemed to have these streaks in him of, of being good, but then the next day it's like he could wake up and completely uh, wipe out the same person that he was good to the, the day before. Um, so he is not a good man in any way, and this is the man that we are introduced to in chapter 1. We're going to go ahead and pray and then get into the study. Heavenly Father, help me, Lord, to be clear throughout this time, not only to tell the story again, uh, but, Lord, that we can see what it means for us today and why it is in your word. Lord, help us never to look at this book the same. We ask this in your name. Amen. So chapter 1, in a great display of power and his wealth, he puts on this party. He puts on this feast, and it, and it lasts for 180 days. And it's for all of his princes and his servants. Once that's done, uh, he has another smaller party. And I say smaller. Uh, it's just for the people in his, in his palace of Shushan. But he pulls out all the stops, and it's just going to be for seven days. But in those seven days... He puts up the best decorations. Every, um, every drinking vessel in the palace was gold. And every single drinking vessel was different from the other. And, I mean, whatever people wanted to drink, they were drinking. Vashti, uh, she even has her own separate feast going on for the ladies. Well, at the end of this feast, on the seventh day, Ahasuerus and his chamberlains and all his men around him are, are completely drunk. And he calls for Vashti to come before him and his men to, quote, show the people, um, show the people and the princes her beauty. This was a very wicked request uh, for Ahasuerus to make. And in verse 12, Vashti says no. Now, nobody says no to Ahasuerus, but she did. So the king, in this moment, has been utterly embarrassed, and he becomes extremely angry at Vashti. Uh, so the king and his men start talking about what they're going to do in order to deal with her. And one of his men says, look, if the other women of the kingdom hear that Vashti did this to you and nothing was done about it, then the other women in the kingdom are going to start to defy their husbands as well, and this isn't going to be good. So here's what you need to do. Uh, they said, what you need to do is you need to remove Vashti from being queen. 
and you need to make a decree that, quote, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor and every man shall bear rule in his own house. And the king agrees. And so he puts out this decree. Now, gentlemen, let's, let's just say this. We are to be the spiritual leader of our home. That is very true. But we are not to be the Lord of it. And here's what I mean by that. The, the, the idea that men are superior, the idea that women are inferior, has always been wicked. Uh, that is the idea that is coming out from Ezra, Esther chapter 1 uh, from this heathen kingdom. We lead our homes by love. We do not lord over it by force. And if we as men are simply the spiritual leaders that we are supposed to be, our wives will give us honor. Our wives will be uh, to us what I, I think every lady would want to be to her husband if we would just simply be the leaders that we are supposed to be. We wouldn't have to command them to do so. But that's exactly what these men are doing. They put out this command. And in chapter 2, some time passes, uh, possibly even four years between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Ahasuerus, according to verse 1, seems like he, he starts missing Vashti. He remembered Vashti. But the problem is, uh, his decree cannot be undone. That is one of the laws of Media and Persia. You cannot undo a decree by the king. So his servants propose a plan. They say, King, you need to gather all of the fair young virgins in your kingdom and bring them together. And remember, his kingdom is enormous. It's from India all the way to Ethiopia. And you need to bring them into the house of women. And uh, in one year, you can take your pick of whoever you'd like, and they can be your queen. And the king agrees. Now, in verse 5 through 7 of chapter 2, this is where the story kind of stops, and we are introduced to our next main characters. First of all, we have Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jewish man bearing his Jewish name in, uh, in Susa. And he's from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, and he was captured by Nebuchadnezzar under the second uh, exile, under uh, Jeconiah, as he's called here, or Jehoiakim, um, as he is called in Second Chronicles. Uh, but he was one of Ahasuerus' servants that served in Ahasuerus' gate. And then we are introduced to Hadassah, who was a Jewish girl, and that was her Jewish name. However, um, she goes by the name Esther, and she's Mordecai's cousin, so she's also from the tribe of Benjamin, but she was an orphan. And uh, Mordecai kind of took her in as his own daughter and raised her as such. And uh, she went by a different name. She went by Esther. And the Bible says that she was, quote, fair and beautiful. Now, in verse 8 and 9 of this chapter, when this decree goes out and all these fair young versions are being taken out, well, with the Bible calling Esther fair and beautiful, obviously Esther is taken as well. And incredibly, of all of the women under the watch of this man who's in the house of women for uh, Ahasuerus, Esther obtains preferential treatment. And she was treated kindly. 
uh, by the people. She was given seven maidens to watch over her. She was given the best room in the house. Now, this treatment was not because she was a Jew. Uh, nobody knew that she was a Jew. Uh, Mordecai told her, do not tell anybody of your, of your heritage, uh, and she obeyed. And for a year, Esther waited along with the other women to be brought before the king. And every single day, Mordecai would come and check on her. Now, after this year has passed, the women begin to be called one by one in front of Ahasuerus. Now, in order to make a good impression on the king, uh, each of the women had an opportunity to choose whatever they wanted from the king's house in order to wear in front of him and to make themselves as beautiful as possible. Uh, whatever they wanted, any jewelry, any, any clothing, it appears, they could go ahead and wear it, and they would be brought before the king, and once they were brought before the king, they would not go back to where they came. They would go to a different house of women, and they would remain there for the rest of their life. The only way they would find freedom from that and come out and see the king is if the king found favor with her and called her by name. That was the only way that she would be able to come out again. Well, it's Esther's turn. And incredibly... When Esther is shown everything in the king's house, this, this is all the different things that you can wear. These are all the different things that you can choose from. Esther doesn't choose any of it. Uh, she just kind of goes in what the master of the house says that she has to go in. Uh, but she doesn't choose anything different. And still, at the moment that she walks out, the Bible says that she finds favor in the eyes of everybody that looks at her. And out of all of the women, Ahasuerus makes Esther his queen. She was in every way his first choice. And throughout this entire time, again, nobody knew that Esther was a Jew. And that leads us to verse 21 through 23 of chapter 2. Something incredible happens here. After Esther has been chosen as queen and Mordecai is still serving in the king's gate, there's a time when he's kind of out in that court of the king and he overhears a plot he overhears an assassination plot against King Ahasuerus, and Mordecai tells Esther, and then Esther tells, finds a way to tell the king in Mordecai's name, and they kind of inquire as to these two men who are coming up with this assassination plot, and they find out that it's true, and those two men are put to death, and it's written in the chronicles of the king. Look in verse 23. And when inquisition was made of the matter... It was found out, therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now I want you to take that, and I want you to put it in your pocket. It's very important to remember for later. Now about another five years pass, and in chapter 3 we're introduced to our next main character. We're introduced to Haman the Agagite. And Haman is elevated to a chief position in the kingdom. And the king even commands that everybody bow down and give reverence to this man, Haman. But the Bible says Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. And the other servants are kind of going up to Mordecai and they're asking, why aren't you obeying the king's command to bow down to Mordecai? And it, it becomes apparent in verse 4 uh, that Mordecai's answer is, I'm not bowing and I'm not giving reverence to a man because I'm a Jew. So the other servants approach Haman after Mordecai does this time and time again. They approach Haman, and they basically ask Haman, just because he's a Jew, does that exempt him 
from the law of the king, because that's his excuse for not giving reverence to you. And when Haman hears that Mordecai won't bow, won't give him reverence, and when he hears that he's a Jew, the Bible says that Haman was full of wrath. It's hard not having you here, but let me ask you this. Does, does Haman the Agagite mean anything to you? Think about it. Does that sound familiar? Haman the Agagite. Do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when King Saul is over Israel, and the Lord told him, you need to slay the Amalekites, all of the Amalekites, what was the name of the king? The name of the king was Agag. Saul refused, he spared Agag, but then what did Samuel do? Samuel, the Bible says, hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord. There is great argument that Haman is a descendant of this man, and obviously they are not going to like the Jews very much because of their history. So Haman decides, I am going to use my position, I'm going to use my power and my wealth, not just to take out Mordecai, but I'm going to take out every Jew throughout the entire kingdom of Ahasuerus, from India all the way to Ethiopia. And in verse 7, Haman casts a lot. The Hebrew word for lot is pur, P-U-R. He says, I'm going to cast a lot, and I'm going to find out what day would be best to fulfill this desire that I have to take out all of the Jews. And the lot falls on the 13th day of the 12th month, and it's currently the first month of the year. So Haman tells the king his plan. He says, listen, there is a group of people in your kingdom that do not obey your laws, uh, and they find themselves exempt from it, uh, obviously. Uh, you need to make a decree that cannot be reversed, that they must be destroyed. And Haman goes even further. He says, it needs to happen on this day. It needs to happen on the 13th day of the 12th month. Anybody who wants to kill the Jews can. You are allowed to on that day. And whichever Jew you kill, you can keep the spoil from that Jew's house and, and all of their property. And Haman even says, I will cover the cost of anything that comes along with this decree. And the king takes off his royal seal and he gives it to Haman and he says, you can write the decree, you can do whatever you wish, go ahead and make it known that on the 13th day of the 12th month, in 11 months from now, all of the Jews are going to be wiped out. And this decree goes forward. Now may I remind us at this point, the kingdom of Ahasuerus included the city of Jerusalem. Even though there has already been a group that has gone back from the kingdom of Persia to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel. They are still underneath Persian rule. This decree even included those remnant of Jews that had went back to Jerusalem. If this decree is going to be followed through with, every single Jew alive would be wiped out. When Mordecai hears about this in chapter 4, all the Jews begin to mourn and they fast over this decree. Esther really doesn't know what's going on. She's kind of in, in the palace. All she hears is that Mordecai is outside the king's gate in sackcloth and ashes. So she sends him some clothes, but he refuses the clothes. And he sends them back, and he sends them back with a message. 
Uh, and this is what he tells to Esther. Look in verse 8 of chapter 4. Also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, and to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him, and to make request before him for, and these last two words are so important, for her people. Esther is being told by Mordecai, it's time to come forward and tell the king that you are a Jew. Esther sends back her reply, and you know what it is. She says, everybody knows the law. If you go before the king without being summoned into him, that is cause of, of death. That is worthy of the death penalty unless he holds out the golden scepter to you. And then she goes on and says, now look, this, this doesn't happen, okay? It does not happen for the king to hold out, especially Ahasuerus, to hold out his golden scepter. It does not happen often. Uh, and Esther basically says, if you think it's going to happen to me, just because I'm his wife, let me inform you that he hasn't called to see me for 30 days. But Mordecai replies, and he says, do you think just because you are his queen that you will be protected? He is going to find out that you are a Jew either way. And then he says what many of us remember from this book. He says, you know what, Esther, if you do not choose to speak out, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And then look at the very end of verse 14. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? So Esther replies, she says, tell everybody to fast and pray for three days and three nights. I will go to see the king, and she says, if I perish, I perish. Three days have passed. They have fasted and they have prayed. And Esther puts on her royal apparel in chapter 5. And uh, the king was sitting on his throne, kind of looking over his court. And Esther specifically stands in a spot where she knows that the king can see him. And immediately the king sees him and puts out his golden scepter. I mean, without hesitation, and I, I cannot stress this enough, just reading in history that this just does not happen. It does not happen for a Persian king to do that to somebody in his presence that he did not invite in. But he did it for Esther. Look in verse 3 and 4. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be even given to thee to the half of the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. And the king says that that's going to happen. Why did the king ask Esther, what do you want? What do you want? Because the king knows what Esther is doing right now. She understands that it is risking her life. So the king is saying, why, Esther, why did you just risk your life to stand in my presence without me, being, without me calling you? Tell me what is on your mind. And Esther says, I'll tell you tonight at this feast between you, me, and Haman. And at this banquet with the king and Haman, uh, something very strange happens. The king asks Esther, what is your request? Why did you come to see me today? Ask what you will, I'll give it to you, even to half of the kingdom. And instead of Esther saying, I'm a Jew, and Haman wants to kill us all, save us, please, she says this. She says, can we have another banquet tomorrow, and I'll tell you then. Why not now? I mean, why not ask 
Now, why tomorrow, Esther? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But the banquet was set for the next day. Now, Haman leaves, I mean, just as happy as can be, and he's probably drunk. Uh, but as he leaves, he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai does not bow to him and does not give reverence to him. And when Haman gets home, his family and his friends all ask, you know, how was the banquet? And he says, oh, it was great, and I'm rich, and I'm wealthy, and I have all these children. But none of that means anything to me. As long as Mordecai is alive, that man needs to die. So his family gets him an idea. And they say, you need to build a gallows 50 cubits high, 75 feet high. The king obviously likes you. I mean, you were part of this, this private banquet with him. So go in tomorrow and request that Mordecai will be put to death on these gallows. And immediately, Haman has these gallows built. So can you see in this part one, all the way through chapter one, through chapter five, just the danger keeps building and building and building against the Jews. And now there's this imminent threat against Mordecai uh, that is going to happen the very next day. That night, Haman builds the gallows for Mordecai. Something else happens. This night is a pivotal night. And it brings us to part two, which is the deliverance. So the same night that a gallows is being built for Mordecai, the same night that Haman is coming into his greatest power, the same night that Esther strangely didn't tell the king her request, that same night, chapter 6 tells us that the king can't sleep. Could it be that he's wondering what Esther's request is? Very possible, but we're not sure. But the fact remains he can't sleep. So what does the king do? He requests for his chronicles to be read to him. And some of his servants come and start reading in the chronicles of the king. And wouldn't you know it, they read the portion of his chronicles that reminds him that Mordecai had saved his life from an assassination plot. And the king says, well, did we ever reward Mordecai for, for saving my life? And they kind of look through and they say, no, no, I don't see any reward here. And the king says, he must be rewarded. Now, he still can't sleep. Maybe it's coming up to the early part of the day. And he asks his servants, he says, who's in my court? And they look out and Haman is there in his court. No doubt Haman had gotten up early because he wanted to have the first appointment with the king. And what is he going to ask the king? He is going to request that Mordecai be put to death on the gallows that he just built. And the king calls for Haman to come in. And Haman comes in. And before Haman can even speak, the king says to him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thinks he's talking about me. Who else would the king delight to honor other than me? So Haman starts thinking. And he says, oh, here's what you need to do. I mean, you need to let him wear your robes. You need to bring him on horseback throughout the streets. I mean, let everybody know just how much he means to you. And the king just goes, yes, yes, it's a great idea. That's exactly what I'll do. Take everything that you just said and do it to Mordecai the Jew. So Haman goes from wanting to ask for Mordecai to be put to death to now Haman himself has to put the kingly robes on Mordecai, put him on the king's horse, and parade him through the streets of Susa, saying, this is what the king does to whom he delighteth to honor. And he does that pretty much all day. Haman goes home afterwards. He's crying. He's got his head covered. And after he talks to his family, they basically tell him, look, there, 
This is because Mordecai is a, quote, seed of the Jews. There's something special about the Jews. You're not going to be able to defeat him. Before Haman can even wrap his mind around this circumstance, I mean, he gets a knock on his door, and the people are summoning him back to this second banquet between Esther and the king. And it's in this banquet, the second night's banquet in chapter 7, where Esther comes forward. She reveals that she's a Jew. Uh, she says that Haman's royal decree was actually meant for her and her people. Now, the king can't reverse his decree because that's one of the laws of the Medes and Persians. Uh, so he goes out into his palace garden. While he's out, Haman is starting to beg for his life to Esther. And while he's doing this, he kind of flings himself in, in a in a rage of emotion onto the bed where Esther is lying and the king comes right in at that moment and King Ahasuerus doesn't like that very much and he puts Haman to death on the very gallows that Haman had built the night before for Mordecai. And that leads us to chapter 8. Haman is dead and Esther introduces Mordecai to King Ahasuerus as her cousin and the king ends up giving Mordecai uh, his ring, and Esther sets Mordecai over Haman's old position. However, the first decree is still in effect. The Jews are still set to be slaughtered on the 13th day of the 12th month, and it cannot be undone. So Ahasuerus tells Esther and Mordecai, you need to come up with a second decree that reverses the first decree. And it's about the third month. They still have nine months until the 13th day of the 12th month, and they put out this second decree. And the new decree granted every Jew the right to defend himself. Any attackers that come against you on that 13th day of the 12th month, you can defend yourself, and if you kill one of your attackers, you can keep his spoil. So think about this. Decree number one is anyone in the kingdom has permission to kill any Jew and keep the spoil for himself. Decree number two is any Jew in the kingdom has permission to defend himself against the people of decree number one and take his spoil on that same day. And this decree goes out and all the Jews begin to celebrate and many of the people in, in the kingdom convert to Judaism because they feared the Jews. So think about this. The Jews had such a reputation in the kingdom of, uh, in this kingdom of, of Media and Persia, people would rather convert and put themselves under the danger of decree number one rather than be under the danger of the Jews in decree number two. Isn't that incredible? And in chapter nine, the 13th day comes. And the Jews all gather themselves together in their cities, and they prepare to fight. And there are attackers. For sake of time, uh, you can look through. There's, there's a main battle that takes place in the, in the palace of Shushan, and 800 men are killed there. Not one Jew was killed, from what the Bible tells us. 800 attackers are killed, not including the 10 sons of Haman, which are then hanged on gallows as well. But then throughout the rest of the kingdom, from India, uh, India all the way to Ethiopia, 75,000 attackers are killed. But the Jews have victory. And after this victory, Esther 
and uh, Mordecai, they declare, we need to have a, a celebration every single year on the 14th and 15th day of the 12th month in the Jewish calendar. We need to have an annual celebration to remember. And here's what we're going to do. To remember how Haman had cast lots in order to, to bring our destruction, but then the Lord kind of turned it against him. We're going to call it Purim. Purim, P-U-R-I-M, is the Hebrew word for lots. And the Jews still celebrate that today. Purim, you see that. You can look it up in your calendar today uh, that the Jews still celebrate that day. Chapter 10 is only three, chap uh, three verses long. Uh, but in that chapter, we see how Ahasuerus' kingdom continues to grow, and Mordecai is right there along with him. He is elevated to the second in command. And look at chapter 10, verse 3. We'll read that together. For Mordecai the Jew was next unto the king Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. It will be beneficial to remember at this point as well that Ahasuerus' son, Artaxerxes was the king who gave permission to Ezra and to Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem. And no doubt his mother-in-law, Esther, had something to do with that. So obviously an incredible story. But why is it in the Bible? What do we learn from this book of the Bible? If we took this out of the Bible, what would we miss? Well, first of all, do we learn from this book that God's people don't have to compromise in order to prosper? Yes, we do learn that. And Joshua 1.8 says we can have good success and prosper not by compromising with the world, but by meditating on and observing to do all that is written in the law of God. We do not have to compromise in order to prosper even in the world. Do we learn that um, man is very wicked? Yes, certainly we do. Do we learn that pride goeth before destruction? Absolutely, when we see Haman, uh, Haman's story. But once again, our greatest lesson is going to come from asking the question, where is Jesus in Esther? Just give me your attention for five more minutes and we'll be done. Where is Jesus in Esther? The answer is he is never mentioned. As a matter of fact, God is never mentioned. Throughout the entire book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned at all. Now, perhaps you already knew that about the book of Esther. Perhaps you didn't. But go ahead and look through there. You will never see God's name mentioned. But I love what this preacher said about it. He said, although we do not see God's name in the book of Esther... There is nowhere we can look therein without seeing his hand. Think about everything that happened throughout the entire story. Is everything that happened coincidence? Was it coincidence that of all the girls who could have been chosen to replace Vashti, it was Esther, and she just so happened to be a Jew? Was it coincidence that Mordecai was in just the right place at just the right moment to overhear an assassination plot against the king? Was it coincidence that Esther was put in a position where she could save her people? Was it a coincidence that the night before Mordecai was to be killed, the king couldn't fall asleep? That instead of Mordecai being killed, he was exalted. That instead of Haman being exalted, he was killed on the very gallows that he made for Mordecai. Was it a coincidence that instead of all the Jews being destroyed, 
because of one man's insomnia and one girl's courage, the Jews were spared. One of those Jews being Daniel, one of those Jews being Ezra, one of those Jews being Nehemiah, and one of those Jews being a descendant of David who would eventually lead to Jesus being born. You can write this down at the very beginning of Esther in your Bible to help you remember. There is no coincidence. There's only providence. All throughout this story, in the natural working of events, without violating man's free will, without interrupting the ordinary affairs of the kingdom, the unseen hand of God controlled everything. There is no other book in scripture that illustrates so clearly the concept of God's providence and protection over his people. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So here's how I want to apply it to us, church. There are some times when it feels like God can't be found. And we can see that happening today. And you can imagine putting yourself in Esther and Mordecai's position. There are times when evil seems to be winning. There are times when to stand for right, it brings threats on your freedom and on your life. A man wrote this, said, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. He may be out of our sight, but we are never out of his sight. He may be invisible, but he is infallible. He may seem strangely silent, but he is actively sovereign. And sometimes the storms gather around us, but we don't have to fear it raining on earth when we know that God is reigning in heaven. And even though evil may be temporarily permitted, it will be ultimately frustrated. And even when we can't see God, he is working. And what I want you to remember is he works through people. He works through people. And he wants to work through you. Now, if you refuse to let the Lord use you, he'll find somebody else. But who knows? If you were brought to this point in time, to this very moment at Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, or wherever you are, wherever you're watching, who knows if he brought you to this moment for such a time as this, for such a time as 2020, when standing up for Jesus can bring ridicule, when preaching the truth is falling out of style, when simply meeting to worship the Lord can bring a $5,000 fine on your church, when doing what's right puts you in the minority, when the whole world seems to be falling apart, maybe God brought us right here for this time. I believe that. And I hate to bring it to you, church, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The day is going to come in America when being a Christian could bring a death sentence. I'm telling you it could happen. It's already happening throughout the world. And do we expect to stand with Esther and say, if I perish, I perish. If that day were to happen, are we going to say that as well? I highly doubt that if we won't even live for him today. Do not tell me 
that we are willing to die for the Lord if we are not willing to live for him. And may I remind us before we go, even after all man has done against God, even after all of our sin and our failures, our complaints against him, our doubts toward him, our rebellion toward him, Jesus still came as he promised because he believed that we were worth dying for. So don't we believe after all God has done for us, after all God has done throughout Scripture, and time would not permit to name it all, don't we believe, after all he's done for us, that he is worth living for? I challenge you to live for him. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.